Yeah. Well, good morning. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Josh, and according to my daughter, I am kind of sort of a pastor. Um, <laughs> Uh, I did pastor in Wisconsin for a number of years before moving here, and I'm technically not on a pastoral staff, but um, it's complicated. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> if you want to talk about that later, we can, and I'll try to clear up, any, clear up anything. Um, but every once in a while, I get a chance to open up God's Word here, and it is a joy to preach and teach and study God's Word with you. So I'm looking forward to doing that. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that we have been going through the Gospel of Mark, and you also may know that we are not on chapter 11 yet. We're not skipping anything. We're just going to jump forward and then go back, okay? I'll talk about that in a little bit. But let me just start by saying happy Palm Sunday. I don't know what the proper response is to that. Um, do you say it back? Hosanna? Is that how you, how you do it? I didn't grow up in like a liturgical church, so maybe some of you that did know a, a greeting. Um, you know, Easter, you kind of greet with happy Easter, or he is risen, he is risen indeed. Get ready for that next week. Um, Christmas is definitely Merry Christmas, and we have a whole like carol dedicated to exploring that greeting. But Palm Sunday is Palm Sunday, and it's, it's kind of it's a little different, I guess. It's like the introduction to Holy Week. It's not just a regular Sunday, as good as those are here. We love those, but it's Palm Sunday. It's a special week, Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week, which continues to Good Friday and then continues on and culminates with Easter seven days from now. And Palm Sunday and Easter are kind of the bookends of that week that remembers Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection in Jerusalem. So in my church growing up, when I was a kid, kids like me were given palm branches. We were told to walk up and down the aisles of the church, and we were told to shout at the top of our voices, Hosanna. And we did. It was absolute chaos at Perry Baptist Church every Palm Sunday. And I think it was probably entirely unrepresentative of what that Sunday looked like 2,000 years ago, but it was fun, and it got the kids involved, and it usually concluded with palm branch sword fighting among us elementary boys. Whoever thought, let's give the kids branches and encourage them to yell during church uh, is either brilliant or um, did not think that one fully through with kids like me. We did seek, though, to celebrate Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And we'll read that text in a little bit. We sought to celebrate the crowd's acknowledgement of his kingship, but not to rain on your Holy Week parade too much. I think the tone of the triumphal entry, as we review it and think about it, is a bit more bittersweet than some of the crazy celebrations that happened in small central Michigan churches. The crowd that day was celebrating what they thought was the coronation of a king. But the king was heading to his execution. Bittersweet. We have been walking through the book of Mark, and it didn't quite sync up. Nate and I could not work our magic quite perfectly enough to get it synced up so that we would the next passage would be the triumphal entry when we landed on this day. 
So we are going to jump forward a few chapters, and then after Easter, we'll step back. And don't worry, we'll cover Mark 9 and 10. If you're a completist, we'll get to that as well. But today is Palm Sunday, so we're going to cover the triumphal entry, and that scene is in Mark 11. Now, one more thing, full disclosure, I preached a variant of this message two years ago to a camera and Nate in his living room. Um, According to the YouTube views, my mom and about three of you watched that. Um, I watched it three times, so it might have just been my mom and myself. I'm going to kind of reconfigure most of that message, but forgive me if it seems like a little bit of a repeat. Um, It is, but it was very different. Um, At that time, I was accompanied by those pallet wood backdrops that we leaned up against Nate's wall, and there was that ubiquitous plant that was there every time. You guys remember the plant? I wanted that plant to become an honorary member of Cross of Grace Church, but I was voted down quite unanimously on that one. So here we are, the triumphal entry, just a magnificent moment in the story of Jesus, and one of, one of a few moments that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, refer to in the cover. They all do it. Matthew talks about it, Mark, Luke, and John, but they do it in different ways. Uh, Matthew tends to highlight the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Luke emphasizes the praise and glory due to Jesus at that time. John does something entirely different. He jumps forward and looks back on the scene from a post-resurrection vantage point. John always does things a little bit different in his gospel. But Mark takes a a different and not a contradictory approach. He focuses in the story on something different. He focuses on Jesus' humility. Jesus' humility. And in doing so, Mark Mark paints the scene not as a celebratory occasion, not as a big, fun coronation, a feast, but he paints it as a tragic comedy. There's a sad absurdity to this scene in Mark that we'll see as a king rides into his capital, but rides in on a donkey. As a crowd assembles to cheer his name and praise him, but then quickly forgets. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses as we examine Mark's account, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to think about this passage as it as we work through it. Mark's account of what's come to be known as the triumphal entry. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, this is Mark 11.1, 1, when they near, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olive, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And, unsurprisingly, some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had 
cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Let's pray. Father, we love your word. We love the stories of Jesus and the story of the gospel, which is our salvation. And as we examine this part of Mark's gospel, would you show us Jesus afresh? Help us to know him more, love him more, worship him more deeply, and honor him with our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. Yesterday evening, my wife and I were having dinner at a little place in Victoria, and we were sitting there enjoying a good meal with a couple friends, and we're sitting at a table at this restaurant. It's kind of a small restaurant in Victoria. There's like half of it is a bar, and then half of it's a restaurant, and we're sitting there, and there's a guy at the bar that I just, I'm kind of like, he's right there in my view, and I'm having a hard time concentrating on the conversation because this guy is unique. Um, I don't see him here this morning, so I wanted to check on that first so I can use this. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't put the pieces together at first, but he had these like glasses that looked like an Elvis-style glasses. Like There was gold in them, and they had these designs in them. And then you could see his hand. He had like two or three rings on his hand, a leather jacket, these really fancy boots. He had these black pants that had like these buttons down the side. Um, it was just, it was quite the get up. And I'm like, what is the deal? I have not seen a lot of guys like that in Minnesota. And so um, with due diligence, I mentioned it to the rest of the table and we tried to figure out how many rings do you actually think this guy has on his hands? And that was part of our dinner conversation for a number of uh, minutes. But something just seemed off. Something wasn't quite right. And come to find out, this guy is a Bono impersonator. For those of you like my daughter who doesn't know who Bono is, he's a singer. Um, most of us in our 40s know him quite well. We're supposed to like him a lot because he's the lead singer of U2. And so this Bono impersonator is just sitting at the bar, eating his meal, having a drink, and just enjoying a Saturday evening in Victoria. <laughs> and it's just, like, it just didn't, like, what in the world is going on? He's by himself just eating there. It was weird. Has anybody seen this guy around? Is it just, okay, I didn't know if you, like, some of you live in Victoria. Maybe he just walks around the streets every weekend or something like that. Well, we found out he is. I tried to look it up, and I got lost on, on uh, Google. Uh, that went wrong, and it just didn't find him. But apparently he's for hire if you are, are a big U2 fan and you want him at your birthday party. The crazy thing for me as I thought about this is he didn't belong in this little restaurant in Victoria, Minnesota. It just wasn't the right fit. He belongs on a giant stage, right, with laser lights and smoke machines and band members and singing and crowds going wild and him singing about streets that don't have names, all that kind of stuff. That's where Bono belongs, is on that kind of stage. And yet there he is in a little restaurant in Victoria with about 30, 40 other people. It just didn't fit. It wasn't right. He wasn't getting what he deserved. And I think that feels like this passage here. Here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. And he's on a donkey. The crowds forget him. 
He deserves more than that, right? I'm not going to examine every detail in this text. Instead, I want us to approach this text thinking through three different audiences. First, there's the audience to whom Mark was writing. He's writing his biography of Jesus, and various Christians and churches in the first century after Christ's death and resurrection were reading this and hearing this and responding to this. So that's audience number one, Mark's audience. Audience number two is the actual audience in the story, the crowd, the people of Israel, gathered in Jerusalem at a festival time as Jesus arrives. And finally, the final audience is ourselves, a few thousand years after the events in this story. And we're going to bounce around these three audiences as we think through this story for the next few minutes. So audience number one, the readers of Mark, the hearers of Mark, they would have discovered, as, they, as you have, as you heard Mark preached over the last few months, they would have discovered the awesome authority and power of Jesus in the first eight chapters of this book. Jesus repeatedly and magnificently heals teaches with authority, casts out demons, calms storms with his voice, walks on water, and even shows his authority to forgive sins. Jesus, as Mark portrays him and as Mark shows him and as Mark introduces him to his audience, Jesus is shown by his actions that he is the Son of God who came in flesh. The first half of Mark is all about that. It's story after story after story of Jesus' power, 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 authority, authority, authority. And then it changes. In the second half of Mark's books, his readers would have found less miracles, and Jesus instead teaches his followers multiple times that he must suffer, die, and rise again. He'll teach them that following him doesn't just mean authority and power and glory. It means service and suffering. And the second half of Mark's gospel has a very different tone from the first half. Mark has built his readers up to see Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah who comes with all authority. But as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem... He starts to instruct his followers about suffering and service. And there's a struggle to fit the power that you saw displayed in the first eight chapters with the predicted suffering and the invitation to service in part two. How do those two things go together? So a fresh reader of Mark would have mixed emotions, I think, with this scene in chapter 11. Remember all the power things? Is Jesus now taking his seat on the throne? Or is he coming to die as he predicted three times? Can both things be true? Can he both take his throne and die? Is he really going to do what he predicted to suffer, die, and rise again? Or is he going to pull something magical out of his hat last minute and take the throne, change the storyline? There's this wonder for Mark's audience. What is happening here? So let's jump to audience two now for a minute. The crowd in the story around Jesus in Jerusalem. They don't seem to have this sort of predicament. Is Jesus coming here to die or is he coming here to take the throne? They haven't heard the prediction of suffering like the readers have in Mark. They've heard the stories of power. They've maybe experienced those stories of power. And the people of Israel saw Jesus as the promised Messiah King who would take his throne, 
free his people. Now, all sorts of Old Testament passages would have been in their minds as they shouted, Hosanna, which means, save us. They're here for a king to take his throne. They're here for that magnificent coronation. Multiple passages in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, Psalm chapter 2, Jeremiah 23, Daniel 7, many others forecast a king from the line of David who will reign over his people. And Jesus is from the line of David and has the power of a king. And so for the people of Israel in Jerusalem, this was it. Jesus, the one who had authority over disease and demons and storms, who taught with unparalleled wisdom, was now, in their minds, going to take the throne and free them from Roman oppression. Hallelujah. Hosanna. Perhaps the most striking Old Testament prophecy at this point is in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hosanna, they cry. Jesus is here, the king. We're almost free. If he can do all those things, imagine what he can do to the Romans. It would seem that the shouting people with their branches and their thrown cloaks are just obeying the prophet's instruction. Rightly, but incompletely, the people of Israel saw Jesus as a Messiah king. What they were missing was that Zechariah's prophecy had that note of humility. And other prophets, like Isaiah in chapter 53, would spell it out even more clearly as they forecasted a servant who would suffer for the sins of his people. Yes, the Messiah was a king, but the Messiah would be a servant who would suffer, according to Isaiah. And for the crowds, in their enthusiasm for the crown, the people of Israel were neglecting the cross, the necessity of the cross. So they celebrated, they shouted, they threw their cloaks, they danced, they yelled, they sang, and they went away. Because Jesus didn't go to the throne here. He went to Bethany with his disciples at the end. Audience number three, I don't think we're too far off from the crowds. We're not so different. Give us any measure of suffering in the picture, and we jump quickly to this is not the way it should be, so save us quickly, Lord Jesus. Whether it is a stubbed toe in the middle of a night, or a multi-year global pandemic, or war in Europe or Africa, We jump quickly to save us out of this suffering, Jesus. It's not all bad. Perhaps some of you have jumped to those descriptions throughout the book of Revelation that show Jesus returning with power and glory and cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's not wrong. We're instructed to pray, Your kingdom come. But, and here's what's missing in this passage for the crowd. In our longing to escape suffering, we can sometimes miss the necessity and, dare I say it, the usefulness of suffering. God often does his greatest work through some of the hardest suffering. 
So let's get back to the text here. Mark's readers would have this ominous feeling as they heard that Jesus had entered Jerusalem in verse 1. Jesus has predicted his suffering and death at least three times in the gospel, maybe more to the disciples, and now they're in Jerusalem where he said he would suffer and die. Most of his ministry has been in the north of the country, but now in verse 1, Jesus drew near to Jerusalem. There's an ominous tone to that. It gets darker, the place where he said he would suffer. And so, in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, Jesus arranges for a colt or a donkey to ride in on. And it's a really interesting kind of fun story. He just says, go get it and tell him I told you to and it'll all work out. And it does. Um, It's not really something that we should model um, our procurement method. Like, I need a car right now. And listen, uh, Josh, uh, I need a car and the Lord told me Eh, not exactly what we're supposed to do with this. It once again just shows Jesus' ability to see and know his power. But here is where the story takes on a comedic tone. Now, we think comedy and we think slapstick, right? That's kind of what we're used to, comedy. But here, it's comedy in the sense of the absurd, not the slapstick comedy we're used to. The scene here strikes a note of a tragic comedy, Much like the old story, The Emperor's New Clothes. You guys remember that one? (laughs) Kind of a weird, weird story. I don't know the history of that one or how that story came to be. I hope it's not based on a true story. Uh, It's a strange one. But in that scene, there's a comedic element, right? It's kind of funny. But then you laugh at it and you're like, this is uncomfortable and a little shocking. And for the poor king who's prancing around town naked, it's sad, isn't it? So there's this comedy but tragic note to that sort of scene. The emperor doesn't recognize his nakedness, which is funny, but it's also really sad. And in Mark 11, the king of the universe is riding on a colt. This is the creator king. He stills storms. He commands demons. He raises the dead. He's supposed to be riding on a powerful steed or in the back of a chariot or on a cloud, right? And here he is on a donkey. So let's try to put that in modern terms, right? Imagine, and this will take some work for some of you, You'll find out why. Imagine that the Vikings won the Super Bowl. <clears throat> for some of you, for some of you, this is hard to do because you're Packers fans or Bears fans or whatever. Um, for others of you, this is hard to do because you're, um, you're Vikings fans. <laughs> um, but imagine it, okay? Just imagine, if you can, if you can, if it's not too painful. The Vikings are triumphant, and they're coming back to Minneapolis to celebrate with a parade right down Nicolette Avenue. It's going to be a big deal, and you all are going to be there. I know some of you would be there. I know you would. Even if it's on a Sunday morning, you're like, see you later. I'm going to go celebrate this thing. The highlight of the parade, the highlight of the parade will be when Super Bowl MVP and fellow alumnus of Michigan State 
University, Kirk Cousins rides in, right? He's going to ride in to all this glory. And so there you are, screaming out loud, drinking out of a horn, yelling skull with the other purple bedecked faithful, and the parade rolls in. You're so excited. This is the moment you have been waiting for your whole life. You've never experienced it. Generations ahead of you have never experienced it. No one has ever experienced it. And there you are on Nicolette Avenue, just dancing and screaming your lungs out. But, but, instead of a magnificent float for former Spartan Kirk Cousins, he rolls in driving one of those mini Shriner cars with the rest of the offensive line. And they kind of do the little loop-de-loop and figure eights. And um, You may shrug it off and strike up another round of Skull Vikings, but you know that's not right. That, that's weird. It just doesn't fit the situation. Kirk deserves more, right? He deserves a float shaped like a Viking ship or a blimp or a dragon maybe even. He doesn't deserve something comical here. It's the same with Jesus. He deserves something more here. But if Jesus had ridden in on a powerful war horse and somehow like a Cinderella scene transformed his disciples into an honor guard, if Jesus had done that, it would have signaled to the Roman authorities that revolution was at hand. And so instead, in order to fulfill the prophecy, in order to show his humility, Jesus rode in on a colt. He wasn't arriving in order to conquer in the sense that the people expected. He was coming to ransom a people by serving them through sacrificially laying down his life on their behalf. And it seems that the people here were more interested in shortcutting past the suffering that was at hand and getting to what was envisioned in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 27, as it talks about the future return of Jesus. Listen to these words. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. That's what it's supposed to look like in their mind. But something needed to happen first. That's an image of power and liberation. That's Gandalf showing up at the Battle of Helm's Deep when all seems lost, riding his mighty shadow facts as the sun rises behind him. Gandalf didn't ride a donkey with a mighty hee-haw. That image just doesn't fit. It's absurd. It's tragic. But Jesus didn't ride a shadow facts. He rode a donkey. And that's because he wasn't coming for a throne. He was humbly coming for a cross. The crowds, the disciples, even Peter in chapter 8 earlier could not accept this. Kings don't willingly die. And that's why this can be seen as that tragic comedy of the absurd. The people are enthusiastic about a king who is showing his humility and service and heading to the cross. And everyone, including us, wants to skip the suffering and get to the glory. Verse 11 concludes this scene with a rather anticlimactic note. I highlighted it earlier. As Jesus enters the temple, which seems like a good place for a Messiah king to take up his crown. This is where the coronation would happen, in the temple, in David's temple, right? 
So the excitement builds. The king is in the temple, people are shouting. But Jesus looks around, and since it's late, he heads back to the suburbs with his closest friends for dinner. The party quickly dies out. The palm branches start rotting in the streets. The people quickly forget about their, this so-called king and start searching for their cloaks and try to find their family for dinner. It's a tragedy. But unless we exalt ourselves to a superior position, let's think about our view of Jesus. So many of us relegate Jesus to a get-out-of-jail-free magic card. You need to get out of a fix? Well, in case of emergency, break the Jesus glass and there will be rescue available. Listen, there are times when Jesus does miracles of provision and rescue in our lives. I can attest to those. But there are also times when Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you and that thorn will not be removed yet. Jesus does some of his greatest work in suffering. And in this passage, he's about to. So don't rush to the crown and forget about the cross. The readers of Mark have heard about two aspects of Jesus' identity. He's the sovereign king with all authority, but he's also a servant who predicted his suffering, death, and resurrection. The king willingly goes now to the cross to ransom a people. He humbly lays down his life rather than take up the throne. The need here that the people don't realize, is for a spiritual savior, not just a political champion. Many of us could do well to reflect on that. But the people of Israel were enthusiastic for their donkey-riding champion. Perhaps they remembered the coronation of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1, where David's successor rode in on a colt. And if you remember Zechariah 9.9, that prophecy, you might be able to understand why their enthusiasm wasn't dampened by the donkey replacing that valiant steed, but it certainly was dampened when Jesus made no political move against the Roman oppressors, when he left Jerusalem a few hours after his entrance. And throughout Mark's gospel, people were continually disenchanted with Jesus as he suffered. They love the healings, they love the power, they love the authority, but the suffering... Well, let's go back to the healings and the power and the authority. In chapter 8, after his first prediction of his suffering, Peter, uh, of Jesus' suffering, Peter rebukes Jesus. The Messiah King shouldn't have to suffer, according to so many. And even on this side of the cross, knowing that salvation that was won through Jesus' suffering, we still defer to a vision of glory without pain. We want victory without sacrifice. We want rule and power without suffering. We don't want the first to be last and the last to be first. We, like the palm-waving crowds, want the crown without a cross. They wanted it for the long-for Messiah King. We want it for our own lives. We want victory, ease, prosperity, glory, triumph, power. But Jesus directs Peter, directs the disciples, and directs all his followers like us elsewhere. He says things like this in chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. 
Jesus, as we saw last week, has turned things upside down in his kingdom. The path to glory involves loss. Victory requires sacrifice. Greatness is achieved through servanthood. Jesus' followers will reign with him, but they'll also suffer with him. And suffering should not surprise us. Our Lord predicted it for himself, and he predicted it for those who follow him. And so much popular-level Christianity in our country has had an underdeveloped or warped theology of suffering. We talk about success. We talk about our identity. We talk about victory. We talk about our best life. And then tragedy strikes. Hardship comes, and we can't fit it into our operative theological categories for our life. And so we walk away, or we get angry at God, or we think we're being punished for our lack of faith. But if we listen closely to how Jesus teaches and how his life was lived, we have categories for suffering. Jesus lamented and wept over suffering, but he could face it knowing there was purpose in it, as he did here. We too can and should lament and weep over suffering, and we do that together, church, but we don't do it without hope. If the father could use the death of his son for such a great salvation of his people, he can use any other suffering for our good as well. That's a hard truth to accept, isn't it? Yes, that includes whatever it is you're facing right now. So mourn over that. Lament over that. Cry out to God for relief. Be sorrowful, but not without joy and hope. There's a temptation when you're watching a movie or reading a book to skip painful scenes. When I first read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my oldest child, I, was, I knew the story like in and out. Um, I mean, I, I read Chronicles of Narnia dozens of times as a kid, and so I was not surprised by the death of Aslan. Uh, spoiler alert, by the way. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> But as I read that scene where Adam, uh, Aslan dies, I looked up and Dexter had a tear rolling down his cheek. And so when I read it to other children, I was tempted to skip that painful scene and just jump to the good part of Aslan's glorious return where, you know, ding dong, the witch is dead, the children are kings and queens. And I, I guess that is another spoiler alert there too. We want to skip to the good part. We want to skip to the good part. And as we begin over the next few months to head towards Jerusalem in Mark, there's a temptation to maybe want to skip to the good part or to the end here. It's all a good part. We want to skip from Mark 11 to Mark 16 or even better to Revelation where Jesus does descend in the clouds with a sickle to wipe out his enemies to bring justice And then in Revelation 19, Jesus enters riding a white horse, not a donkey anymore, a white steed. His robes are bloody from the defeat of his enemies, and he has king of kings and lord of lords embroidered on his robe and tattooed on his thigh. We want to skip the suffering and get to that conquering king. We don't want to see king of kings and lord of lords absurdly put over Jesus' head on the cross. We want easy victory for Jesus, and truth be told, in our own lives. So often, though, the greatest work is done in the midst of suffering. So after his 
exciting entry into Jerusalem, the story slows down, and we'll see that over the coming months. The story slows down as Mark narrates the painful scenes of Jesus' arrest, trial, torture, crucifixion, and death. But Jesus' death wasn't simply a tragedy. It was a triumph as he secured the salvation of his people. And, spoiler alert, it wasn't the end. Come back next week and we'll celebrate his victory. We'll celebrate the risen Jesus. But, over this week and in our lives, if we skip the scene of Jesus' suffering death, if we long for the crown without the cross, we miss the true beauty of what Jesus accomplished. In his suffering, there is good. There is our salvation. Jesus, thankfully, held on to that suffering for our salvation. Jesus triumphed over the grave and his eventual triumphant return are glorious because of his humble willingness to go to the cross. He fought for our salvation. And his triumph is glorious because the only way we could share in that triumph triumph is if he ransomed us by suffering on our behalf. The cross precedes the crown for Jesus and for us. So don't skip the suffering. It's there where Jesus so often does his greatest work. Let's pray. Father, our temptation is to want to skip pain. But you so often use that pain for our good. We can all think of times in our life where where we grew through pain. And the greatest example of that is in Christ, who went to the cross, who bore our sins, who took your wrath away from us, who died in our place, and then rose again. So Father, this week as we remember your passion, may we glory in your suffering. And may we find strength to face our trials, tribulations, and suffering as well as we follow you. In Christ's name, 